Now, I invite you to take your Bibles, please, and turn with me to uh, Colossians chapter 2. We want to pick up our study on what a authentic disciple looks like. Uh, we've looked at a authentic disciple's profession, an authentic disciple's prayer, and this morning we want to look at an authentic disciple's purpose. Uh, he has one purpose. And that is to remain steadfast, to be strong in the grace which is in Christ. And so I invite you to take your Bibles and turn to Colossians chapter 2, and we're going to read the first seven verses together. Will you please stand in honor of God's word? I want you to know how much I am struggling for you and for those at Laodicea and for all who have not met me personally. My purpose is that they may be encouraged in heart and united in love so that they may have the full riches of the complete understanding in order that they may know the mystery of God, namely Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I tell you this so that no one may deceive you by fine-sounding arguments. For though I am absent from you in the body, I am present with you in the spirit, and I delight to see how orderly you are and how firm your faith in Christ is. And I want you to underscore in your mind those last few words, how firm your faith in Christ is. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we come before you today with heavy hearts. And we pray that your Holy Spirit might fill this place with his presence. That you might speak to us as only you can. When we are grieving with our dear families, Lord, it's a time for all of us to just come close to you and know that you are a very present help in time of need. And there's nothing that occurs in our lives that escapes you. And I pray that your comforting presence and your peace, your grace would be with the Barnes family right now. Please, Holy Spirit, engulf them with your presence. Please, Jesus. There are so many things in this life that we don't understand. But we can trust the one who does know. And he loves us and he's there to be our help in time of need. He wants us to come close to him. And Lord, there are those here this morning that need a special touch from you. And I pray that in these moments that we will sense your Holy Spirit at work in each of our hearts and that we would be sensitive to the nudges of your spirit. We would allow you to draw us close to yourself and to each other. Speak to us now, Lord, from your word, I pray. In the matchless name of Jesus, amen. You may be seated. You and I today are living in a culture where people would rather quit than stick, bail out rather than hang on, cut bait rather than fish, leave something unfinished rather than persevere and follow through. We're living in a world where people are stressed out, they're looking for easy ways out, they're thinking about running away, they're considering the possibility of giving up altogether. 
They want to escape from reality. They want to avoid the hard challenges. And they want to stop before they finish what they believe God has called them to do. But an authentic disciple of Christ is controlled by a different drumbeat. Instead of quitting or bailing out or escaping or hiding or running away, an authentic disciple is known for being steadfast. He stands in the strength of his faith and in his commitment to Christ, even though everything all around him or her may be uh, in a state of disarray, and we don't know which way to turn. And in a society which is increasingly post-Christian, the authentic disciple is one who stands firm. He does not let any event or situation in life deter him from his commitment to the Lord Jesus Christ. Steadfastness is a quality that we all need to develop. It's a discipline that we need to develop. It's that inner quality of faith that refuses to budge no matter what the circumstances and challenges of life may be. Now, I want you to notice that the one who enables us to remain steadfast is none other than our resurrected Christ. It is the reality of Christ's resurrection that gives us the power to withstand all the turbulence and all the things around us that don't make sense. It's that resurrection power of Christ that enables us to stand firm when everything around us is falling apart. Paul puts it this way in 1 Corinthians 15. He says in verse 58, Therefore, my brothers, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord because you know that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. My friends, when everything around us is turbulent and changing and unsettled, God is looking today for those who will be steadfast, who will be unmoved, who will be undeterred in their full commitment to the Lord Jesus Christ. The reason we are to live this way is because of the environment that surrounds us. It's interesting that Paul says in Ephesians 6 and verse 13, therefore put on the full armor of God so that when the evil day comes, you may be able to stand your ground and having done everything to stand. You and I are living in probably one of the most turbulent times in the history of the world. That which we have come to understand as some sense of normalcy has now been completely shattered. We're living in a world where things just do not add up, where decisions are being made for us that affect us in ways that we don't know how to even respond to. And in such an environment, what we as God's people must do as committed Christ followers is to stand firm in our faith no matter what the obstacles, no matter what the environment is that surrounds us. Authentic disciples remain steadfast in the faith. We are not standing alone. Our resurrected Christ is standing with us. And the Bible says that we are more than conquerors through him that loved us. So steadfastness is something that we can bank upon because the power source for our steadfastness 
is the resurrection of Christ. The reason we are to be steadfast is because of the environment in which we live, and the results of being steadfast are found here in chapter 2 in verse 5, where Paul says, for I... <clears throat> For, for although I am absent in the body from you, I am present with you in spirit, and I delight to see how orderly you are and how firm your faith is in Christ. Notice he delights. There is joy in steadfastness. When we are standing tall for God, no matter what the environment is, there is a sense of joy that not only permeates those that are on the front lines of ministry, but it impacts every single one of us. Steadfastness, being able to stand, not caving, not wavering in our commitment, even though things are difficult. This is what marks an authentic disciple of Christ. Authentic disciples have one driving desire, and that is to remain rock solid in their faith no matter what. Uh, today is not the day for easy believism, for quick fixes. Today is the day in which we take our stand for the Lord Jesus. We stand upon what he's purchased for us at the cross, and we do not allow any force from within or from out deter us from that commitment. Our faith is not faddish. It is anchored in Christ. And here in these first seven verses of Colossians chapter 2, Paul outlines for us the dynamics of a steadfast life. First of all, he talks about the characteristics of the steadfast life. You notice he says in verse 1, I want you to know how much I am struggling for you and for those at Laodicea and for all who have not met me personally. Paul says, I want you to know that as your spiritual mentor, I am struggling for you. That word struggle is the Greek word from which we get our word agony. Paul lets these people know that as believers in Christ, he is struggling with them. He is agonizing over them because he knows how difficult it is to stand in an evil culture. You and I are living in a world today where many are chucking their faith overboard. In fact, we talk a lot today about the de-churched. We talk a lot about those that one time had a relationship to Christ and now all of a sudden have just uh, chucked it overboard. And Paul is saying, I'm wrestling, I'm struggling, I'm in agony, I'm fighting a hard battle for you that you will stand strong in your faith, in your commitment to Christ. He refers to this in the first chapter in verse 29, he uses the very same word, notice, verse 29 of chapter 1. To this end I labor, I struggle with all his energy, that is the power of the resurrected Lord, who so powerfully works within me. Paul is well aware that you and I cannot live the Christian life apart from the energizing presence and power of the Spirit of God. None of us can live the Christian life in our own strength. And when we try to do it in our own strength, we will always fail. And so Paul is in a great contest. He's in a spiritual battle, and he's battling in prayer for the Colossians, and he's doing everything that he can to let them know that even though he can't be with them in person, he is with them in spirit. 
and he longs to be with them. Oh, how he wishes he could be with these people that he dearly loves. He knows they're facing opposition. He knows they're facing attacks from the enemy, and he longs to be with them. And he's, he wants to defend them, especially from the Gnostic teaching that had been infiltrating their ranks. Gnosticism taught that <clears throat> Jesus Christ was not God, that he was just a good man, that you had to do a lot of other things to really become a born-from-above believer. And so he wants to rescue these people from this devilish teaching that is causing many of them to chuck their faith overboard. He longs to be with them, to teach them, to protect them from this evil. But he's in prison. He's not able to be there. And so he wants them to know how he longs. He's wrestling that the people of God would stand strong. He not only wrestles for the people at Colossae, he wrestles with his own predicament. Uh, oh, how he would long to be freed. But now he is in prison awaiting sentencing by Nero, one of the most wicked emperors ever to live. And the issue is life and death. And from a human, imp from a human point of view, it would have been far easier for Paul to recant his faith and not stay in prison. But this he would not do. Paul was a champion for Jesus Christ no matter what he suffered no matter what he went through, he would never, ever consider for one moment not to remain true in his loyalty and in his love to the Lord Jesus. He would not recant. He would not abandon his faith. And that is what he is pleading for on behalf of the Colossians, that they would stand firm, that they would be rooted and grounded in Christ. And two, mo two reasons motivate him to stand firm. First of all, his loyalty to Christ. Over in chapter 1 and verse 24, notice what he says. Now I rejoice in what, was, in what was suffered for you, and I fill up in my flesh what is still lacking in regard to Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, which is the church. Paul is saying, I have endured much suffering so that I could bring the gospel to you. I cannot begin to match the suffering that Christ did for us to bring us to himself, but I am committed to you to the point that I'm willing to lay down my life so that you will stand firm in your relationship to Christ. And he knows that those new believers there at Colossae are watching him very closely. How could he expect them to remain true to Christ if he is their leader? Will he be given into cowardice only to save his own neck? And Paul is aware that others are watching him. My friends, as believers in Jesus Christ, we live in a glass bowl. People are watching us every single day. We open up the word of God. We say we believe. We say we belong to Jesus Christ. They want to make sure that our behavior matches our belief. And this was one of the problems that the people of Colossae were facing. These Gnostics were coming in and saying, it doesn't matter how you live. You can do whatever you can want to do, and it's going to be okay. You can live on the fence. You can be in the world one day, put on your Sunday best on Sunday, and put on another front. He's asking us to get rid of all that kind of facade Christianity, he's asking us to stand firm and to honor Christ in every detail. 
And so after he shares his heart, the uh, apostle gives the Colossians three clear-cut characteristics of a steadfast life. First of all, he says the steadfast life is a life where our hearts are encouraged. Look at chapter 2 and verse 2. My purpose is that they may be encouraged in heart. Now, the word encouraged there doesn't mean to be consoled, but rather it means to call to one side. He's imploring them to stand up to these enticing arguments of the enemy, these loud voices that are urging them to abandon their faith. He prays not that they would be relieved from the struggle, but rather that they would be reinforced by divine power to overcome the attacks of the enemy. So many times, we as God's people, we pray that problems be removed. Much more biblically, we need to pray that God will give us the resolve to persevere through our problems and to overcome in the strength of Christ. That is what the steadfast life is all about. He's praying that their hearts would be encouraged, that instead of giving up, they will become even stronger no matter what the challenges of life may be. Number two, he prays that their hearts may be energized with love. Notice, and united in love. To be welded together in unity. Nothing provides greater support than when the body of Christ is welded together and united in love. In fact, in chapter 3 and verse 14, he talks about the fact that love is what binds all these other wonderful qualities together. Love is what enables authentic disciples to be compassionate and kind and humble and gentle and patient and forgiving. You see, love is the lifeblood of the church. When love dies, the church dies. When love dies, the church dies. If faith is to survive and we're to remain steadfast, then love of the brethren must be nurtured and cultivated. We must be known as a life-giving, loving church family that is deeply in love with Jesus. And no matter what happens on the outside, we remain unmoved in our commitment to the Lord Jesus Christ. We must be energized by love. Michael Green, in his book, Evangelism Through the Local Church, puts it this way, quote, When love reigns in a church, everything begins to take off. It's like when the sun shines in a garden, everything starts to grow. When there is love, members of the church will be prepared to risk making mistakes, knowing that it will not matter and that they will be loved all the same. Love like that becomes infectious. It cannot be held back by church doors. It will flow out through the community, unquote. Friends, we can stand strong as we are encouraged, as we love one another, and as we walk by faith, not on our feelings. And then thirdly, he prays that they would experience, notice in verse 2, the full riches of God. I love this that they may know the mystery of God, namely, Christ, in whom are hidden the treasures 
of wisdom and knowledge. The steadfast life is not only characterized by inner strength and outward love, it is characterized by full assurance. That full riches of the complete understanding refers to the assurance we have because we've acknowledged Jesus as our Lord and Savior. We have passed from death unto life. Our life is hidden with Christ in God. <clears throat> and nothing can take away that life that has been given to us. When we are anchored in Christ, my friends, we are spiritually rich. And Paul speaks of this assurance as all riches in verse 2. He speaks of it as the treasures of wisdom and knowledge in verse 3. Riches and treasures are found in the person of Christ. That is where our focus must be. The way to remain steadfast, the way to be an authentic, born-from-above disciple is to have a, a focus upon Jesus. Jesus is the one that enables us to stand when everything around us is crumbling. Number two, he gives us the cause. Why should we be steadfast? You see this in verse 4. He says, I tell you this, and then notice those two little words, put a circle around them, so that whenever you see a so that in the scripture, your ears ought to perk up because what is about to follow is very significant. He says, I tell you this, I'm telling you to be strong and steadfast and to be anchored to Christ and let nothing sway you from your commitment so that, notice, here it is, so that no one may deceive you by fine-sounding arguments. You see, Paul is cautioning those believers at Colossae who are being tormented and distracted by false teachers who are teaching that Jesus is not God. Their view of Christ is skewed and radically misleading. Jesus is not just a good moral teacher. He is God. He is the one who sent Jesus into the world to be our Lord and Savior. He is our God. He is our master. Notice in verse 3, the phrase, in Christ are hidden the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. They're not hidden in the sense that they are store, uh, concealed, but rather they're hidden in the sense that we can draw upon these resources whenever we are facing the attacks of the enemy. And let's face it, you and I in this day and age need the wisdom and knowledge of God every single day. We can't make it in 21st century America without the wisdom and knowledge of God. And this is especially true for two reasons. Number one, the presence of deceivers in the world. He says, so that no one may deceive you. He's talking about Christ followers who are seeking to live the life that God has called them to, but they live in an environment that is seeking to pull them away from their commitment to the Lord Jesus. That word deceive is only found in this text 
And in James chapter 1 and verse 22 where we read, do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. He wants us to live the word. That word deceive means to lay astray by false teaching. And he's warning the Colossians about this Gnostic heresy that Jesus is not divine, he's just a mere man, and that freedom in Christ means that we have a license to sin. Paul says, don't listen to them. Don't listen to their logic. They're flawed. They have a skewed view of Christ. In verse 8, he tells the Colossians that this teaching, notice, is based on the traditions of men rather than the truth of the gospel. Notice verse 8. See to it that no one takes you captive. Here it is again. Through hollow and deceptive philosophy, which depends on human tradition and the basic principles of this world rather than on Christ. My friends, this is serious business. We need to take our cue for a living, not from the traditions of the world, not from the environment in which we live. We need to take our cue from Jesus in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. False messiahs with utopian schemes continue to come on the scene. In fact, there is a religious movement in California right now. A heresy that Jesus has already returned to earth. The world's had enough of war and hunger. They've taken out full-page ads in the Los Angeles Times, New York Times. They've even propagated their false claims on television specials. Deceivers are all around us. Be very careful of anyone who comes and says, the Lord told me to tell you this. Deception is at hand. He not only alerts us to the presence of deceivers, he also reminds us to be aware of the practice of deceivers because they use in verse 4, notice, fine-sounding arguments, persuasive rhetoric, fast talk, handing someone a smooth line. Barclay, in his commentary, points out that the phrase fine-sounding arguments paints the picture of a persuasive lawyer in his closing argument. He's so persuasive with his fine-sounding arguments that he can take what is bad and make it appear to be good, and in the process, gain the support of the entire assembly. My friends, today, make no mistake about it, Satan is a master deceiver. We are in a war with the enemy. There's only two forces in this world, Jesus and Satan. And more often, Satan is the one who is doing everything in his power today to deceive and to kill and destroy everything that God seeks to build. And more often than not, he attacks us in our minds. If he could get us to think wrong thoughts, it will not be long before we embrace worldly wisdom, humanistic philosophy, aimed at immediate gratification. We live in a world where people want things, and they want it now. If I can't do it my way, I'm going to 
Skip town. Humanistic, immediate gratification without considering long-term consequences. One of the most devilish philosophies of our generation is this Gnostic philosophy, which Paul discovers at Colossae. Along with denying the deity of Christ, the Gnostics taught it didn't matter how you lived or what a person did. In other words, you could claim to be a Christian one day and the rest of the week you could live just like any other immoral person lives. It's amazing to me. And I've seen this for many, many years. How professing Christians can justify playing both sides of the fence. When they're with their Christian friends, they act one way. And when they're with their unsaved peers, they march to a beat of a different drummer. And one of Satan's most deceptive tactics today is to encourage us to compartmentalize our lives. We live one way in public and quite a different way when we are all alone. And almost without exception, this is the reason why outstanding Christian leaders who for one reason or another think they can play that kind of a game have fallen and caused havoc to the whole cause of Jesus Christ. We see it especially with some of the well-known that have fallen. But let me tell you, when I was the district superintendent of the Evangelical Free Church, I saw the underbelly of the church, and it made me sick. The way we play games with God, we think we can get by. We can play both sides of the issue and not get burned. Friends, that's what not... That, God's not looking for that kind of mishmash Christianity. He wants us to be steadfast in the faith. I'm reminded this morning of Truman Dollar, one of the most notable and dynamic pastors in America in the 70s and 80s. He pastored some of the largest Baptist churches in America. He was a prolific author. In fact, I have several of his volumes in my library. But back a number of years ago, while pastoring the Baptist temple in Detroit, he became involved with a, a woman parishioner. It wasn't sexual, but it was tantalizingly verbal. And Dollar had to step down. He went through a process of discipline. During that process, he experienced such severe depression that his whole family was fractured. And eight years after that incident, this man who God had used incredibly for many, many years took his own life. You see, when we play this kind of a game, when we waffle back and forth between really living for God and then allowing the world to squeeze us into its mold, <laughs> let me tell you, we're in dangerous territory. That's why Paul is saying here, he's pleading with the people, I want you to be steadfast. Don't let anything deter you in your walk with the Lord Jesus Christ. 
What's with all the tragedy in our world today? Either knowingly or unknowingly, we've given into the devil's lie that it doesn't matter how we live. We can handle all those fine-sounding arguments, those human traditions that are so tantalizing. Oh, we're strong enough. We can handle that in our strength, and we fall flat on our face. And it not only injures us, it injures the body of Christ that he purchased with his own blood. And that's why Paul is saying we can't handle these things in our own strength. We need the resurrection power of Jesus. We need that energizing presence of his Holy Spirit. That's the enablement that enables us to stand when everything else is crashing in upon us. The Christ follower who is authentic, he is not swayed by those fine-sounding arguments. He runs to his advocate the Lord Jesus Christ, who has the power to deliver and give him personal victory. Unfortunately, people use Christianity for their own evil ends, just like the Gnostics of Paul's day. There are some who would even say that you can be a Christian and still publish pornographic material. We can be born again and still remain in the adult entertainment business. Larry Flint, Hustler Magazine, and I'm quoting, quote, all the churches are going to turn against me. They're going to be embarrassed because I relate to my God differently than they relate to theirs. If you ask me, yes, I'm a born-again Christian, but I'm going to continue to publish pornography. Anybody who doesn't like it, and go kiss a rope. Pornography is not sinful. Unquote. To that I say baloney. That comes from the pit of hell. That kind of Christianity, I don't want anything to deal with. God is calling the church today to be steadfast, to be unmovable, and always abounding in the work of the Lord. Why? Because we know that our labor is not in vain in the Lord. It's because of Christ that we stand tall for him. Authentic disciples do not let fine-sounding arguments, hero worship, happen so much today. We put our eyes on people. Let me tell you, if you are a Christian and your Christianity is based on, uh, on what other Christians do or don't do, you're stepping on a banana. God is looking today for people that are authentic and real and who will stand for him. And he has given us all the equipment that we will ever need to stand tall. He's given us a resurrected Christ. He's given us the power over Satan and hell. He's given us everything. But we need to maximize it, accept it, and stand strong in his grace. Now, what are the consequences of the steadfast life? Why should we determine to be steadfast? Well, he gives us the consequences. Look at this in verse 5. First of all, he says, <coughs> For though I am absent from you in body, I am present with you in spirit 
and delight to see how orderly you are and how firm your faith in Christ is. Paul is saying, I'm not with you in person, but I'm with you in spirit. My heart is with you. And words come that all these enemies of the cross are seeking to divert you and to take you away from that rock-solid faith that you had, but you're being tormented by these fine-sounding arguments. But as he reflects and he understands that they are standing firm, notice he says, I delight to see how orderly you are. That word orderly means they are taking a stand, and it causes him great joy. You see, when we see fellow believers who are standing up for what is right, doesn't that just bless you, bless you beyond measure? Don't you love to be around people who are standing strong for God? <laughs> Goodness. It's amazing. When people are taking their stand, and they're not allowing the world to squeeze them into its mold, and they remain true to Jesus Christ, no matter what, man, it causes the body of Christ to rejoice. And that's what Paul's doing here. One of the results of steadfastness is the body of Christ is rejoicing. And he's praying that they will continue to remain steadfast. A second result of the steadfast life is exemplary conduct. Verse 6, notice. See how orderly you are and how firm your faith in Christ is. You see, they are in a relationship with Jesus. Relationship always determines behavior. To act like authentic disciples, we must first be authentic disciples. And to be an authentic disciples means that we have one purpose. And that is to remain true to the one who loved us and gave himself for us, no matter what may come against us. My friends, with the way things are going in our world, you know, you and I, <laughs> we have it too easy here. We have it way, way too easy. Our brothers and sisters in some of these third world countries and some of these Countries that forbid Christianity are suffering severely. There are many that are being challenged to chuck their faith overboard, but they're not. And they've been beheaded. And they've suffered deeply. We here in America are so soft. We can read all about it. We can be numb to what's happening in our world today. I believe what Paul is giving to the church here in Colossae is a wake-up call. He says, I not only want you to profess Christ. I not only want you to be a force for Christ in your prayer life, but I want you to be consumed with one purpose, that no matter what comes against you, you are going to remain steadfast and strong because you are anchored to the king. That's what he's looking for. And then the third consequence of the steadfast life is an established faith. Notice he says, how firm your faith in Christ is. 
Now, how does our faith become strong? How can we develop this kind of steadfastness where our faith is strong and undeterred from everything else that may be coming against it? First of all, our faith becomes firm by being rooted in Christ. Notice <clears throat> verse 7. Go back up to verse 6. So then, just as you receive Christ as Lord, here it is, continue to live in him rooted. Put a circle around that word. Rooted calls to mind the picture of a tree with its roots that are going down deep into the soil. And just as a true rooted deeply in the soil draws the sufficient nutrients to remain healthy, so to be rooted in Christ is to be anchored in him so that our roots are going deeper and deeper and deeper every day. Is that true in our lives? Are your roots going deeper and deeper every day? Do you spend time alone with God? Do you take time to just get quiet before him and soak in his truth? Or you do you begin the day with grabbing a cup of coffee and going full blast without ever thinking about God? When was the last time you just spent a few quiet moments? Just drawing close to Jesus. That's how we grow deep. When our roots grow deep, we can stand strong. Secondly, our faith becomes firm by being built up in Christ. That word built is an architectural term. It refers to a strong and firm foundation. We can only remain strong when the foundation is solid. And our foundation, my friends, is Jesus. Are you thankful for your salvation? Are you thankful that God has taken us as messed up individuals and he's breathed into us life so that we can live for him wholeheartedly, not half-hearted? God's not interested in half-hearted Christianity anymore. He's looking for people that are sold out to him completely. And finally, the way we develop this kind of faith is our faith becomes firm, notice, by overflowing with thankfulness. Notice, last part of verse 7. Rooted and built up in him, strengthened in the faith as you were taught, overflowing with thankfulness. There is nothing like thanksgiving that waters our faith. It helps our faith grow and develop. Nothing kills our faith more than a spirit of complaining. Criticism is like a hot desert wind that withers everything that it grows. But thanksgiving is an oasis of refreshment. Faith that is firmly growing 
will evidence an abundance of thanksgiving. The more steadfast, the more rooted, the more grounded we are in Christ, we will also be known as thankful people. Wouldn't you like to be known as a thank you person? I always try to at least thank four or five people every day. Maybe it's through an email. Maybe it's through a phone call. Maybe it's through a conversation. Just say, I'm so thankful for you. Thanksgiving. It's, it's, it's like a breath of fresh air in a barren land. And as we give thanks, our roots continue to go deeper and deeper into the love of God. And we stand up for him no matter what the enemy throws in our direction. Authentic disciples are driven with one purpose, to remain firm in their faith. Christ is their passion. He is their path. They purpose to live for him. He is their soil. They purpose to be rooted in him. He is their foundation. They purpose to be built up in him. Authentic disciples are steadfast who are on a journey that never ends until they see Jesus face to face. That's what God's looking for in each one of us today. Let's stand, shall we please, for closing prayer. <coughs> I want you all to bow your heads. If Paul were here, he would look out on the congregation and say, I love you so much. I'm so thankful that you came to know Jesus as your Lord and Savior. I'm so thankful that you're standing firm in your faith. But I want you to take it up a notch. I want you to make even a greater resolve to be committed, to be steadfast no matter what. <clears throat> Don't let the fine-sounding arguments that we hear all around us distract us from our loyalty to Jesus. And I'm praying for you. I'm struggling with you. We need to struggle for each other. We need to pray for our brothers and sisters, those all around us. If we all stand strong for Jesus, the enemy is doing everything he can to disrupt. God is doing everything he can build. He's looking for steadfast Christ followers who will never, never, ever give up. Father in heaven, we love you this morning. We are so thankful for your word. Oh God, you are looking today for, for champions. You're looking for men and women who will take their stand and will remain steadfast, even though we live in a world where morality is not even talked about anymore. Where it's so easy to believe strange doctrines. 
and get quick fixes instead of learning how to obey you. Lord, help us to obey you more than anything else. Help us to obey you in the hard things of life and to do it always your way. Lord, I pray that you would fill us with a knowledge of your will, that you would transform all of us, that we would link arms together as brothers and sisters in Christ and as a mighty army move against the enemy who is doing everything in his power today to destroy what you want to build. And so today, we are committing ourselves to be steadfast servants of yours. And if that is your desire this morning, to be a steadfast champion for Jesus, will you just raise your hand? Keep it up. You want to be what God wants all of us to be. Lord, we commit ourselves to be an army of steadfast soldiers that are pursuing you with all of our hearts until one day we see you face to face. And now may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and that sweet communion of the Holy Spirit be with you now and evermore we pray. Amen. Good morning. And Maranatha, lo he comes. Have a great day in Jesus.